The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, it's D-Day for the BBC. The corporation announces where the DQF acts will fall. We talk cuts, repeats, and job losses as we bring you the final word on delivering quality first. Also in the podcast, we analyse the media reaction to Foxy Noxie after she's acquitted of murder. And something beautiful happened to me this week. I saw this week the best rainbow I've ever seen. And honestly, it blew me away. They brought us absolute 80s, absolute 90s and absolute noughties. But is the station onto an absolute disaster with this latest experiment? It's all coming up on Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, thanks for joining us. We're kicking things off with the BBC, which this week finally announced details of its DQF programme, creating what Director General Mark Thompson called a smaller and radically reshaped organisation. Last year's licence fee settlement meant that the corporation needed to save around £700 million a year until 2017. What Thompson has come up with, as he aims to deliver quality first, is a swathe of cuts, including the loss of almost 2,000 jobs, a 15% reduction in the Beeb's sporting rights, between 3 and 10% wiped from the budgets of BBC One, Two, Three and 4, huge squeezes placed on BBC Radio and local output, and more production moved out of London to Media City in Salford. Crucially, no channels or services have been axed, but of course the devil is very much in the detail. We'll hear later in the show from former BBC One controller Lorraine Hegacy, but here with a skinny now is Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Um, Dan, this was about as brutal as things get, isn't it? I, I think it's about as brutal as it can get without the viewers and listeners noticing. Uh, I think those who sort of thought the BBC had too much fat in it were probably told the answer was yes, weren't they? Because Mark Thomas was managing to save, what, £700 million a year by 2017, and yet not a single radio station is closing, not a single television channel is, is closing. Um, the services sort of look pretty much will be pretty much intact. OK, I think there'll be a whopping 1% more repeats on BBC One and we won't have original content at BBC Daytime, no more cash in the attic, but we'll have something, I don't know, sort of hard talk from News 24. There will be changes. There'll be significant and meaningful changes for staff, but not the viewers and listeners will notice, I think. And it was BBC News that took the brunt of the cuts with uh, 800 of those 2,000 jobs. Yeah, that's right. But again, what's going on here is that the BBC are rationalising two parallel um, news organisations, you know, the World Service and the traditional sort of news operation funded by the licence fee. And the Beebs obviously agreed to take on the funding of the World Service, previously funded by the taxpayer through the Foreign Office. And and, and so this kind of merger makes sense. Uh, Hopefully it will mean, or what it really ought to mean is, some better global news coverage for the Beeb. I know they were talking about, Thomas was talking about more investment in China, for example. Again, look, it's not going to be fun for the, it's not going to be fun for the staff. And I think it'll be difficult. There's a whole lot of difficult employee relations uh, up ahead. But the BBC is not immune from, can't be immune really from the sort of the cuts in the rest of the public sector. Uh, and it needs to sort of be slimmer if it's going to justify the licence fee in the future. You mentioned the response of staff there and Bechtu and NUJ uh, were predictably damning of, uh, of the announcement. Do you think we're going to see a winter of discontent? Yeah, I think we might actually. Uh, I think one of the things that Thompson wants to work on is sort of tweaking, for example, the redundancy terms and conditions. I'm, I'm told it's you get a month for every year's, year of service, month payment for every year of service, up to capped at two years. And I think there's some suggestion that maybe the cap will get lowered. Uh, this is the kind of thing that really does sort of unsettle people and can, can, can lead to industrial action for sure. I think, though, 
I mean, there was obviously the unions are trying to sort of say that this is, you know that the quality is going to suffer as a result of this, and there's some battle over the soul of the BBC. But the, the, you know, there just isn't, and 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 I think that again, we're not got a six music situation, and you know, yes, you know, people aren't going to sort of fight just because they want to see a bit more comedy on BBC Four as a strike. Like me, this is a sort of starting point for a viewer revolt. Big winner if you can call it a winner, uh, is Salford, which is now going to be the new home of BBC Three. Um, Radio 4's new and you and yours. Who'd have thought the, uh, the mm. long-running consumer show would be such a headline generator? And, and another thousand staff. So um, Peter, Peter Salmon's empire gets bigger. Yeah, he's just got to move up there himself, hasn't he, on a permanent basis? I mean, yeah, look, the BBC's doing the right thing in regionalising. You know, ITV's going to inevitably centralise. Channel 4 is centralised. Uh, and of course, people do some, as a Sky, and people do some commissioning out of London. But look, it's the Beeb's job, I think, to represent the UK as a whole. There's obviously, you know, there's obviously Glasgow, Cardiff, lesser extent Belfast, uh, you know, other big centres, I think Bristol as well, to a degree. Uh, so, look, it's good that we, the BBC is, is, is taking the move to Manchester so seriously and putting more people there. I think there's still an awful lot of people commuting up and down. And I think we're still some years away before I think Manchester becomes a kind of organic centre of broadcasting. But if the BBC sticks at it, that, that's what should happen. So, look, it's a good thing they're doing that. One year ahead, less focus has been BBC Radio 5 Live, which it said was going to uh, said it had to refocus on its core areas of news and sport, which is a real, um, a real U-turn uh, on the policy it's pursued in the last few years, which has been uh, ramping up its entertainment offerings. And I think it describes itself now as a new sport and entertainment station, mm. not for much longer. Yeah, it's a pity in a way. I, I, I know where the commercial sector get. One can see why the commercial sector get wound up about uh, Five Live and seen talk sports seem to spend half their life moaning about it. Um, but it's a pity because it's a rather good. It's a it's a rather good popular station. I thoroughly enjoy. I thoroughly enjoy listening to it. It's a uh, uh, it's a sort of welcome change from the the, the high minded seriousness of Radio Four. Um, I've got it's it's it doesn't feel very BBC, but my God, we all pay the license fee. So uh, what's wrong? You know what's wrong with that? So I, I think a sort of you know a cutting down the five life scope is a little dispiriting but again you know these things you know have to be done and i think there's a broader point here i mean you know mark thomas has had a pretty is i think done a pretty good job at kind of sort of managing uh and managing these cuts in a sort of you know in a, in a sensible way you know it shows that a flat license fee was what the bbc could afford all along and still with radio, local radio is lost out. Some of the stations are facing 20% cuts. Uh, BBC London is facing 25% cut to its sort of on-air content budget. And I'm detecting some resentment among uh, local controllers at the fact that Radio 4 has been ring-fenced. It's pretty much, pretty much saved many sort of change. Do you think they got the balance right there with commercial radio essentially exiting local radio to all intents and purposes? I, I, I think there's a real worry about local... I think there's a real worry about local media now. And, well, you know, you've seen the well-worn pressures on the local press... Uh, local commercial radio, similarly sort of, um, uh, you know, often disinvesting and more and more network programming. Uh, you've got, so now you've got the BBC sort of pulling back as well. And it's kind of easy to sort of shoot the guys in local radio uh, because they're out of London and they're not famous and they don't make a lot of noise and we don't generate a lot of headlines for for folks like us. And I, I think you are right to sort of point out maybe Radio 4 should have taken a wee bit of pain as well, actually. It doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like a totally sort of, equitable distribution um and you know let's see where i think we've got to think very hard about where local media is going in the uk i mean uh, you know a few bloggers aren't going to kind of aren't going to replace the gap and i I, people do really want to know sort of what's happening you know whether you know what what, what's happening around their street corner or what's happening in the town center or we don't want to lose that sort of localness and the bbc is such an important part of that i think uh we want to see quite look quite hard what the impact is 
And just finally, do you think this is going to define Thompson's tenure as DG? How are we going to be looking back at him? I think the Thompson of this settlement is not is, is much smarter and more politically adroit than the Thompson of the previous licence fee bid. If you, if you recall fairly early on in his DG ship, he made this blockbuster licence fee bid, you know, with all sorts of comedy nonsense like superinflation to pay for stars. Remember that? Uh, and that was, what, four or five years ago when he went to do the deal with Gordon Brown and he got that kind of plus 2%, plus 3% a year deal. And uh, but it was such an astonishing bid. You kind of looked at it and thought, well, is, you know, what, what on earth is he doing? Is he living in the real world? Because he's not going to get, you know, when other public sector budgets are being held, he's not going to get this kind of, you know, uh, inflation plus type settlement that he was hoping for. And I think Thomson then was, I want, I'll ask for as much as I can get away with, and then get bashed down and see if it's fine. Has been replaced, I think, by a much more mature Thompson, who, uh, you know, who went pretty much to Jeremy Hunt and just said, look. I've done all my sums. You want to, you know, your incoming Conservative government, you want to do something on the licence fee. Let's freeze it. I won't close any services. I can, I can take all the, I can take the pain and the viewer or the listener is not going to notice a vast amount of difference. And I think, you know, and he says to Jeremy, in effect, let's, let's kind of, let's just do this deal now in sort of 72 hours. Now you can argue a bit about whether that was a very democratic way to go about things, but it was a realistic and sensible result. And it did Jeremy Hunt one big favour and Mark Thompson one big favour. It took the whole issue off the table. We would have otherwise had, I think, a year of the of the Murdoch press, the Daily Mail, picking over endlessly BBC overspending and creating a dynamic which I think would have been worse for Thompson. There would have been it would have been a virtual hysteria to get the licence fee knocked down some some way. So I think the the, the Mark Thompson who's done this deal is mature, smarter, has just read the situation, the political situation much better and you know and i think this is the i don't know if it's a defining deal because i'm not sure how memorable it will be but i think it's the most important part of what he's done and what he's achieved in essence is is safeguarded the bbc in a sense of it's a it continues to be a broadcaster of scale and scope with lots of tv channels and radio stations and it continues to have be the sort of if you like the defining the national broadcaster it's still a you know high quality wide range of programming and in the digital era, that's no mean that's no mean achievement. Now, never mind DQF. It's time to find out WTF has been going on in the rest of the media world over the past week. I've been joined for this section by Mr. Neil Henderson, who is head of media at the Red Consultancy. Uh, Neil, how are you? Uh, great. What a, what a week for the media. Yeah, so many. F-hops, you wouldn't believe. Oh, it's carrying on there. It's carrying <laughs> it on. I like it. I like it. We're on a, we're on a roll already. Right, but Neil, you're a, you're a PR man, top of your game. So I'm dying to know what you think about the Amanda Knox coverage, uh, which has been leading the news bulletins uh, over most of the week. First off, I'd like to know, what would your advice to her be in this position? Well, I think she has to go and do um, a kind of... Uh, Martin Bashir style interview in the States on, on 60 Minutes or even do, um, uh, dare I say it, a Piers Morgan where she can actually tell her story um, in full. Um, I think that the media treated her um, like a pariah when she was on trial and now they're treating her like a, a heroine because she, she's got off and now, now, now she's a, um, almost being treated like a bit of a, bit of a superstar. Um, you know, the Daily Mail didn't quite get it right when they put out a backgrounder before the end of the trial. Indeed, um, but I thought that the, the coverage, you know, the BBC coverage was was phenomenal on News Twenty Four um, because they actually had an Italian speaker, um, one of one of their uh, reporters, who um, managed to get the verdict before 
anyone else. And I think that you know the BBC were, were, were panned for some of the Libya coverage, but I think on this story they did a really, really good job. Yeah, as you mentioned there, some of the media didn't exactly cover themselves in glory when the, when the verdict was announced. Uh, that got the verdict entirely wrong, including, um, including Sky News and uh, the Guardian Live blog, we should say, full disclosure. But the, the Mail did it most spectacularly, not, by, not just by getting the verdict wrong, um, but by coming up with a, a sort of entire news backgrounder. Uh, and it sort of gave away the, um, uh, the magic of newspapers a bit, didn't it? Because these things do happen. You do prepare stuff in advance, but mm. uh, not only to publish it, yeah. uh, but also to have come up with such a, a, a detailed um, um, explanation of, of what happened and people's expressions and, and made up quotes was, uh, was uh, a gaff of the year. Yeah, it's the old um, the newspaper trick, p- particularly in the tabloids and at the Daily Mail, of a friend said, and of course it's never a friend, it's always uh, made up quotes in, 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 in the newsroom. But um, in the case of, of Sky News, you, you know, they're always um, criticised for being never wrong for long. And there's been a few classics where I think they announced that Harold Pinter had died and then they realised he'd been given the Nobel Peace Prize or, 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 or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, it does happen. Television and radio particularly, where I used to work, we would create backgrounders and they would sit on a shelf. And there was always times when, you know, you would pick the wrong the wrong tape and it would end up going out and it would be the, the guilty or the, um, particularly in 24-hour news, or the the other the other verdict um i remember a, a penalty shootout in an england game where i cut four backgrounders um and hell of a hell of a task they, right they go out in penalties uh, they stay in the competition they go out and then the manager manager gets sacked so we had all those tapes and of course we played the manager getting sacked right. tape and managed just to stop it um just in time and moved on to something else so it does happen yeah uh, and the mail uh, memorable quote from the mail piece saying uh uh, how uh, Knox uh, realised what the uh, enormity of what the judge was saying sank into her chair, sobbing uncontrollably. But I'm guessing the only person doing that was the uh, the person at the mail who hit the hit the go button. I wonder if um, Paul Dacre has uh, has had a quiet um, chat with them um, in the last few days, or if they're still there. What are the odds on that? Bad luck for them if he was reading the website at the time. Yeah, uh, which, yeah. As far as Knox goes about how much money she could make, um, key thing for her, I mean, people are talking about £10 million from books and TV interviews and, and, and film rights. Is it, could it really go that big? Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly see a film. And uh, who would play her in, in the film? Maybe Rachel Weisz, someone, someone like that, um, or, or Kate. Um, Anne Hathaway? Anne Hathaway, potentially, Kate Winslet. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting, an interesting story. But you've got to feel for the family because um, of, of um, uh, character because uh, they're obviously going to have to potentially go through the, the whole process of someone never being caught for it. So that, that is uh, the, the sad side of this. And that was uh, that was a name that was uh, obvious by its absence in some of the uh, initial statements that the uh, that the Knox uh, legal team and family made to the uh, media straight afterwards. Yeah, I mean, if you remember the Louise Woodward trial as well, what happened after that and the the money that Louise Woodward made, it's kind of a similar scenario. But the media is obviously much bigger, and there's much more money about for for, for people like that now. And just finally, the Matthew Wright show, uh, famously this week or infamously, uh, came up with the title of uh, Foxy Noxy Would You uh, for his. Um, show about the um, about the case is that actually a PR triumph for Channel 5 because it's not often they get on the front page of the newspapers well I think the last time he got on the, the front of the newspapers was when he named someone in a, in a famous um, incident with a, a television presenter and uh, that and Rebecca Lou's uh, that and Rebecca Lou's with the yeah. pig on the farm um, I think I, I think that Matthew Wright uh, knows exactly what he's doing I mean he's had, had a great career in tabloids and he knows if he says something like that the kind of attention it's going to get 
Well, let's have a quick word now about um, ITV. Uh, one of their biggest stars, Harry Hill, is apparently on the verge of leaving them, while their new investigative documentary, uh, Exposure, got off to a shocker last week when so-called human error led to producers passing off footage from a video game as a clip of the IRA shooting down a helicopter back in 1988. Um, now, Neil, that, that seems worthy of a, a clip on TV by itself. Well, it is, and, uh, you know, with, with documentary makers these days, they have to be so careful because, you know, Channel 4 got into a lot of trouble years ago for passing off a documentary as real when it was actually all made up. Um, and I think that these days, with all the compliance issues and Ofcom, that things like that shouldn't happen. They should be intelligent enough to double-check and triple-check the footage. It certainly wouldn't have happened at the BBC. Um, but, you know, when, when things like that are aired, it just reduces the credibility of a new current affairs show on ITV. And, you know, is it worth watching after that? We'll, we'll know, because what, what about the rest of the show, you know? Is that questionable? Is the brand they've been looking for a sort of heavyweight current affairs brand ever since um, they've had tonight, of course, but ever since yeah. World in Action? Yeah, World in Action w- was you know produced some of the best uh, journalists in, in, in television, um, and it was a shame when Granada got rid of it. Um, but if you're going to bring something back, it has to have gravitas and, and as strong as, as Panorama was in its heyday, because when people tune in, they want to know that they can trust the programme. Now, Harry Hill, it remains to be seen whether he leaves ITV or not. Perhaps he might go off to Sky, which is where he was rumoured to go last time. Yeah. You're, you're a big fan of the... Uh... I'm a huge fan of Harry Hill. And, um, you know, he makes me laugh every time. It's the same jokes, you know. Um, you know, who's going to win? Um, it, it should be, a, you know, a fight between, between the two people. Um, but I, I think it's, it, he's, a, he's a great character. It's brilliant before the X Factor, just to, to get you going, before all the tears and sob stories of, of, of that programme. And I think it's a shame if he, if he goes to Sky, because obviously he'll lose about 4 million viewers. And well, I think uh, credit credit to ITV for sort of sticking with the show because it's been on for several years and it didn't necessarily rate particularly well in, in the early days, but they've stuck with it. And uh, you know, a bit shame if it went. I think. Yeah, I think when he started winning Baftas, they realised that they had to keep it because people actually were taking notice of of the kind of zany concept of the show. And I think you know most of the programmes on there are ITV programmes, so it's a good showcase for him to talk about Emmerdale and Corey and all of the other shows of the week. Well, one person who definitely is on the move is uh, Amy Childs, uh, star of, uh, former star of The Only Way is Essex, the BAFTA winning, like Harry Hill, Only Way is Essex. And uh, now she's off to uh, Channel 5 uh, for a new show called It's All About Amy, which uh, I'm told is an intimate and revealing look at the extraordinary life of Britain's best-loved Essex girl. Now, I, I can't name who the second-best-loved Essex girl is, but... Um, uh, Neil, a bowl commissioned by Channel 5. I wonder how far you can uh, you can spread the appeal of TOWIE. But who who watches these things? I mean, who who is interested in her going to the toilet or her putting petrol in her car? You know, Answers on the blog, as, as, as usual, but carry on. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I watched Made in Chelsea, a, a couple of programmes of that. I thought, this is dreadful. But you, you get sucked in, you get hooked into it. But I think just one character who appeals to a certain demographic isn't really going to be a hit and Channel 5 have only got one programme that's a hit at the moment, or two if you watch Police Interceptors. I thought you were going to uh, say Matthew Wright show, but <laughs> yeah, anyway, no. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, Channel 5 is looking better with Big Brother, but um, people want something a bit different these days, you know, not just someone who's from been from a hit show that is, is working on a second-hand, lower-budget format. Finally, to the radio, and uh, Absolute Radio is no longer, no longer for sale. Uh, what did you make of that? It was a long, I'm sure over there they're delighted and reassured that the Times of India Group, its parent company, is going to stick with it, and uh, it must be great to have that uncertainty no longer hovering over them. Well, they've done a great job with Absolute Radio. A lot of people have criticised the audience figures, uh, but they've got a great team over there. Um, you know, Clive is, is, is a brilliant chief executive, really experienced in radio. The head of music, James Curran, um, has done great things with the channel. But, you know, 
Um, digital is still a difficult space to, to, to be in. And I, I know what they're doing with digital. They're trying to spread the budget across four channels, which I think is a bit of a mistake because some people are tuning in specifically for that genre of, of, of programming. But uh, then again, you know, they bought football. I don't think football has been a success uh, on the station. They should put the money into other things. Um, and being on AM, you know, that is still going to be a huge problem for them. It's not going to be a moneymaker. Um, you know, talk sport are in a similar position. They've got, you know, over three million listeners now but you just wonder as we move into a kind of internet radio digital radio age how much people will want to tune into am um, it might just be people in cars which is um again going to kind of run out of run out of steam well you mentioned there their digital channels and one of the one of the innovations they've come up with is uh, taking the frank skinner show which has been a hit uh, sony winning hit not a bafta sony this time on a saturday morning they're going to broadcast it across their four networks that's 80s 90s noughties and classic rock mm. The USP is that it's going to be the same Skinner, but they're going to drop in different tunes uh, depending on which station you're listening to. So if you like ABC, you're going to go for the 80s. If you like Oasis, 90s, and well, you, you can take it from there. Uh, now, I like that. That intrigues me. What do you think? Uh, I don't think it's a, it's a good idea. It's kind of passing off an original brand and trying to dilute it across you know four of your channels you know the bbc are very good at um putting follow-up shows onto um their you know bbc3 and bbc4 itv are very good at that with the x extra factor but i don't think you can do it that well in radio i think it's just a cheap way of filling airtime and maybe getting rid of some staff and not easy to do either because you're you're putting records in and frank's got to leave a certain amount of time for each record he presumably can't introduce any record, but he can be. He'd have to introduce four, uh, and so uh, we're back to the magic of uh, magic of radio again. Yeah, I think what the, what they might do is they might use voice tracking. So um, they do this a lot on Capital when they um, have the regional opt outs. So on Drive Time, you'll have travel and weather in Edinburgh when the, the show is coming from London. Uh, so I think they might do a bit of that, and that might be a good opportunity for Frank to put personality into these these stations. So they'll know the music a week in advance. But on the live AM show, the live kind of national show, you don't want to be confusing Frank too much because he's not a radio man as such. You know, he's a comedian who does radio. So um, I think it will be difficult initially. And tell us about the voice tracking. How does that work on Capital and other stations? Well, what, what they do is they, um, they have computerised opt opt-outs in each region and they record the links um, either during or before the show. So for example if you're listening in Edinburgh the drive time presenter from London will personalise some text from people in Edinburgh and record it so that goes out instead of something saying you're here in Leicester Square there's a big premiere uh, of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That's the way radio is going because with the amount of networking that we're seeing uh, on commercial radio um, voice tracking is a very cheap way um, of making uh, each station have its personalised jingles and and, and, and local travel information. And it's done well. Global seems to have, um, certainly with Heart at least, their figures have gone up. Capital still early days perhaps. But. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, if you're listening to the Toby Anstis show uh, mid-morning on Heart, um, if you're in um, Manchester or if you're in Kent, you'll be able to hear localised content for you. I mean, it's tiring for Toby because he's got to do 30-odd uh, links. But My, my heart's bleeding if that's yeah, the noise you can hear in the background. It's, it's seamless in the main because the early... Uh, form of voice tracking was a bit kind of temperamental but now it, you, you just wouldn't notice the difference okay well i think ultimately we're just going to plug in our ipod to the radio and let frank introduce my songs it's yeah, got to be that's got to be the uh, yeah, the ultimate answer well right neil thank you very much for dropping in and there's more on all these stories over on mediaguardian.co.uk 
So let's return now to the BBC and get a bit more reaction to DQF. I'm delighted, nay thrilled, to say that Lorraine Heggers is on the line. You are, of course, a former controller of BBC One, um, overseeing the channel in, um, I think it's fair to say, happier, happier financial times. But if you were in charge of One Now, if, if you were Danny Cohen, try and imagine, what, what would you make of today's announcement? Well, I think I would be reasonably happy in that given the amount of savings there has to be, um, BBC One has come off relatively lightly and obviously strenuous efforts have been made to protect it in as far as they can. The key changes are a 3% cut in budget and we're likely to see around a 1% increase in, one percentage point increase in repeats uh, on the channel. How much does that 3%, how much does sort of every penny count when you're in charge of BBC One? How, how, how hard is he going to be hit by that? It does count hugely, and um, in fact, BBC One now, probably because there have been incremental cuts to the programming budgets um, over the last few years, I think you'll probably find that BBC One is less well-funded than it has been at any time over the last 10 years by the time these cuts have worked their way through. And obviously, when I did it, I was lucky enough to have extra investment, and the channel really needed it. And I think what you have to watch out for is that you don't underinvest in BBC One such that it becomes a bit of a poor service, because the way the public views BBC One disproportionately affects the way they view the BBC as a whole. And you refreshed uh, BBC One with Doctor Who, of course, and uh, Strictly Come Dancing. And the feeling is, I think, that maybe BBC One could do with another refresh now. And and that gets a lot harder when you haven't got money to throw at those kind of big entertainment shows. But they did seem to ring fence money for those kind of big uh, studio style shows. It's the smaller entertainment shows I think are going to bite the bullet. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot that panel shows are going to suffer on both BBC One and BBC Two which is a shame, really, because it is a way of trying out and discovering new talent in a relatively protected environment. And also panel shows, you know, if you go back through Radio 4, they are one of the sort of um, differentiating features of the BBC, I suppose. You know, it's kind of part of the BBC's culture to have those shows. And your thoughts perhaps a little bit wider on the decision to make BBC Two much anticipated, of course, to turn BBC Two off-peak into essentially a repeat service. Well, I can understand the rationale. You know, I can absolutely get why the BBC is protecting peak time. Um, The evening schedules are the most important. Um, They've got BBC News on the air all day. So sharing that service across, you know, BBC Two and BBC News makes sense. And repeating many of the factual programmes, which, you know, we know viewers want to see programmes again and again. That's why they go to the iPlayer. Um, you know, a repeat's not a repeat if you haven't seen it the first time. But in an era, you mentioned it there, in, in an on-demand era when we, so many people enjoy the iPlayer, uh, is the idea of upping the number of repeats, is it a bit redundant, really? Well, although a lot of people enjoy the iPlayer, people still w- tend to watch programmes when they're scheduled. And, you know, it's still over 90% of all viewing is to live TV. And maybe sometimes to slightly time-shifted where, you know, you shift it to start the program straight after you've had your dinner or something or to skip well not in the bbc's case to skip through the commercial breaks but in other um channels cases so you know there is less on-demand viewing than you might think and people do still value a schedule the acquisitions budget is being cut as well how much do you think um well viewers but also commissioning editors are going to miss the opportunity to to buy up foreign shows because the bbc does spot programs and talent overseas that uh, other broadcasters such as sky don't snap up yeah bbc in particular has done that so you know it's been great the killing was probably my favorite program of the year um and spiral as well you know a french so a danish and a french series which i don't think any other channel would have shown us had it not been for bbc4 and i'm sure they got them really cheaply 
I mean, it's the same when you talk about cutting sports budgets or acquisitions budgets. You're still going to have all that airtime to fill. So you cut those budgets, but there's still the same number of hours in the day um, into which you have to put programs. Something like Formula One might be on, I don't know, for a couple or three hours, same with a football match. So if you're not doing those, you have to find money from elsewhere um, to make those programs, to make programs to fill that airtime. And the same with acquisitions. If you're talking about movies or American series or whatever, they all took up airtime, and particularly because they tended to be made, those series, you know, you tend to get 20 programs or at least 13 in a run. So it's a lot of hours that will have to be filled with original programs at a time when they're cutting original programming budgets too. And the issue of more repeats, was what, was that one of the things you got most flack of when you were controller or, or is, um, is viewers' concern over uh, repeats uh, in peak time uh, perhaps um, exaggerated by papers such as the Daily Mail? I, I really think it depends. You know, Dad's Army is still being repeated and still doing really well. Um, likewise, Only Fools and Horses, you know, that, that, that's often on the air as well. Um, so some, some programmes repeat better than others. Um, and some people do complain about it, but, you know, they can't have it every which way. A license fee frozen for the next four years and no repeats. It's just not going to work. Lorraine Hegarty, thanks very much. And with that, it's time to pull the plug on proceedings. If you've got something to say about DQF or anything else you've heard on the show, head to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk. I should also nudge you in the direction of a special edition of our Tech Weekly podcast, all about the life and legacy of Steve Jobs. Head to the blog and iTunes for more. Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.